right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. We're going to get to our interview here shortly with Golf Weeks and Golf Channel's Eamon Lynch. Eamon is, of course, from Northern Ireland, and he provides some great perspective on what it was like to grow up there and what it means to have the Open Championship returning to Northern Ireland for the first time since 1951 as they head to Royal Portrush this week for the UK British Open presented by Her Majesty, which actually... Now that I think about it, um, in seeing and knowing that the uh, British passports, the front of them say uh, the passports are the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, I think we are going to rename the championship uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland present the UK British Open Championship, also presented by Her Majesty and Dubai Duty Free. Um, So if, if you guys can please make sure to use that when you refer to the tournament this week. Uh, If you did miss our preview episode with Scott Van Pelt last week, Scott, of course, covered the Open Championship for many years for uh, for ESPN, and he has some great stories to tell and uh, a little bit of reminiscing and uh, some uh, nostalgia, I guess, if you will, about the Open Championship. That was a lot of fun. And then Eamon's going to bring us up to date on everything that's happened in Northern Ireland. Not everything, but uh, kind of setting the scene for you're going to hear a lot about Northern Ireland this this coming week and what it means to have this championship returning there and why that was very unlikely. And Eamon provides a great perspective, more than uh, any of us could on our own. So we're so thankful to have some time with him. Before we get going, we're not going to do a lot of PGA Tour wrap uh, this week, but Dylan Fratelli did just win the John Deere Classic. He's, of course, a Callaway staffer. Second in strokes gained putting this week with his Odyssey putter. We're going to get some stats on that here in a second. Also 10th tee to green in strokes gained tee to green with his Epic Flash Sub-Zero driver. Odyssey has won the putter count at every major this year on the PGA, LPGA, and Champions Tour. They added another one this past week at the Senior Players Championship. 35 putters in play. No other putter brand had more than 12. And most of these guys are at the major are non-staffers who choose to play Odyssey simply based on the performance. Again, Odyssey is the most played putter on every major tour this week, including the John Deere, Senior Players, Scottish Open, Marathon Classic. The continued success is led by the popularity for Stroke Lab, and an Odyssey putter has now been put in play over 6,000 times across major worldwide tours this year. Dylan Fratelli this past week used an Odyssey XO Stroke Lab two-ball putter, and uh, like I mentioned, he was second in the field in strokes gained putting this week. So... Uh, without any further delay, we're going to get to our interview here with Eamon Lynch and look forward to another major championship week, closing out major season. It's kind of crazy to say that uh, here before the end of July, but expect to see some uh, live shows from us on Twitter and Periscope after coverage concludes each day. We'll be getting up early every morning. Uh, if you guys are getting up, making coffee, tweet at us, let us know where you're from, kind of that uh, tradition that Scott Van Pelt mentioned every morning, and let's uh, enjoy early morning coverage and uh, one of the best weeks of the year. Without any further delay, here's Eamon Lynch. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We had to bring in the resident Northern Ireland expert so that I'm not the daft American trying to explain a very complicated history, a complicated country to you. So, uh, Mr. Eamon Lynch, first of all, where are you today and how are you today? I am in Port Rush. I'm ready for a pretty fun week. I'm not sure I'm any more of an expert on Northern Ireland than everyone else in this country would claim to be, but we're going to give it a shot to try to figure things out. Well, you are from Northern Ireland, at least. That's a better start than what I've got. 
Well, that's true. I do have that over you, if nothing else. Well, for those that aren't familiar with you, can you give the listeners a bit of a rundown of your golf background? Sure. I grew up in Northern Ireland, moved to New York 48 hours after I got my final results in college in Belfast, and worked in a variety of places, Vanity Fair, the New York Daily News, Village Voice, and I've been in golf probably now for the best part of 20 years, previously at Golf Magazine, Golf.com, now at Golf Week and Golf Channel. For somebody that grew up in Northern Ireland, could you have ever pictured the Open Championship, I'm sorry, the UK-British Open presented by Her Majesty, could you have ever pictured it uh, coming back to Northern Ireland? No, I don't think anybody who lived here at that time would have thought that was a reasonable expectation. I mean, major sporting events, as a rule, tend not to go to places where there is a very strong whiff of fresh gun smoke on the air. And that's really what Northern Ireland had. We're talking about a period from the late 1960s until there were a series of ceasefires that ended things in the mid-1990s. So there was a, a quarter century. And there were times where it was a, a fairly steady level of or what a former British government minister described as an acceptable level of violence. And it, it was a simmering level of violence. But there were some pretty dark days there as well. And the idea that an event of this stature, even when the Open was much smaller than it is now, the very idea that you could have brought that to Northern Ireland would have been considered laughable for so many years. Well, can you can you touch on better? You know, I, I, I kind of went through this when the Olympics was happening and I didn't really fully understand the decision that Rory had to make, uh, which ultimately was, hey, I'm just not going to play for anybody. But the, the big hoorah that was made around, you know, should he play for Ireland or should he play for Great Britain in the Olympics? Uh, for somebody that, you know, that has maybe no knowledge of it, explain why somebody like Rory had that decision to make and what makes Northern Ireland unique in that regard. Well, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a bizarre situation here. I mean, the Northern Ireland conflict is largely framed f in a casual sense as a religious conflict of Catholics versus Protestants, which is a, kind of a little like saying Game of Thrones is a family drama because it really doesn't do justice to the complexity of it because, it, sure, it's, it is religious, and that's true as far as it takes you, but it's also political, it's cultural, it's geographic, it's history, it's contested history, it's economics, it's class, it's... It's a lot of different things. But when you distill it down to the, the basic tribes that Northern Ireland seems to function with, it is predominantly Catholics on one side who are generally nationalist, meaning they favour the removal of the British state of Northern Ireland and a reunification with the Republic of Ireland. And the other side, largely Protestant, is referred to as unionists who aren't for the union with Ireland. They're actually for the union with that exists with the British government. So it's a it's really drawn down those lines, both politically and religiously. And Rory, having grown up in a Catholic family, would be believed or deemed to be, presumed to be nationalist, therefore wanting to play for Ireland. Whereas if you look at Graham McDowell, who grew up in a, in a Protestant family, he would be presumed to feel more British. But the difference, of course, is Rory is really the first post-conflict generation in this country. So he's less hidebound to those old definitions than than even GMAC is 10 years older than him. So I think there was always the expectation that Rory would have to make a call one way or the other and somebody would claim that as a political statement, which in fact it's not because golf in Ireland has always been administered without regard to the fact that there was a border 
on the country. The Golfing Union of Ireland administers the game because it has existed for 30 years longer than the Northern Irish border has actually existed. So anyone who ever played for Ireland as a golfer, be they a Protestant from the north or a Catholic from the south, they played for Ireland. It was one body. So it's, it's, it's in a way, it's a kind of a straw man argument that Rory is being asked to make because the decision had been made for him a long time ago. He played for Ireland as an amateur. He was going to play for Ireland in the Olympics should he choose to do so. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And the first of which being that, uh, I guess, from the very limited experience I've had with my couple trips I've made to Northern Ireland and knowing some people from Northern Ireland and also knowing Irish people, hanging out with Irish people and Northern Irish people together in Northern Ireland, is it safe to say that like the current generation of like around Rory's age views the conflict, if it's still fair to say, very differently than the previous generation may view it? I think so, because it, it really hasn't been a part of their day-to-day lives. I mean, there's, there's still some little outbreaks of sporadic violence in terms of rioting and an occasional killing here, but it's nothing compared to what it was. It's not a... a even in the peak, when I was growing up in, say, the predominantly the 1980s, it was basically about 100 people a year were being killed in Northern Ireland, but it was the pervasive threat of, of violence was much more prominent than the actual violence itself and everyone grew up with that and was aware of it and that's just not the case anymore people lead normal lives their their cultural influences are are much broader than they have been before their ability to to travel to see the world outside of of northern ireland to be exposed to things outside of northern ireland to actually have a, a notion of ambition or that your prospects could take you beyond this place it's a very different mindset if you're rory's age or younger than it would be if you were, say, Graham McDowell's age. Graham was born in 1979, so he was 15 years old when the conflict largely drew to a close. Rory was five years old, and I think that's a big difference in terms of your formative years, for sure. And when you say conflict, it can kind of, I guess, soften, I guess, how how bad things were at times. I remember the, the little bit that I know about is I watched a documentary on YouTube and was just stunned at kind of the, the depths and the links that people would go to to cause violence against each other. I remember hearing stories of, you know, girls would trap certain guys in bars and take them home only to be either harassed or killed by. And and can you kind of give some perspective on what the actual conflict times were like? And the, the times that kind of defined my growing up in, in the 1980s, those kind of honey trap killings, as they were known, were largely aimed at at British soldiers and were largely a factor of the early 1970s, the very early days of the conflict. What, what this was for most of its duration was a combination of, of bombings, and which claimed many lives and did untold economic damage. Uh, it rendered the country unfit for purpose, either as a, a functioning government and certainly not as a host for a major golf championship. But it was also a lot of kind of doorstep killings and there was this kind of appalling intimacy to the violence in northern ireland because in many cases it really was neighbor against neighbor it was people were killing other people in their own neighborhoods and and towns and villages so it creates obviously this division that's very hard to work away from and because it was such a a personal intimate conflict i think that's why it hasn't actually been really resolved fully because if you have a situation as we have in northern ireland where it wasn't really a there was no reconciliation with the past here chris it was literally we drew a line under it and everyone was told we're moving on forget about it and 
that's great unless your loved ones were the ones killed and you don't feel as though you're getting any justice mm-hmm. for what happened. And there was no one was ever held to account for anything, be it Catholic paramilitaries, loyalist paramilitaries or the British state. Uh, so we have this sort of gaping wound that's never really been healed here. And I think that's part of the reason why uh, it's still such a divided, dysfunctional society in Northern Ireland. We didn't go down the South African road of having a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where people were held to account, where answers were given, even if the answers were painful and destabilised peace talks at various points. That was never the process here. It was literally, let's just say this is over and we're moving on. So it's a very imperfect piece, even 20 years later. Yeah, and I, a few more on this, and I promise we will get to the golf, but I really do think it's extremely important for people to understand when they tune in this week why it is important, why you're going to see so many people out there uh, this week, maybe more so than any other Open Championship. But it's it's it was also interesting to me how you know the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland isn't it's a soft border. There's no passport checks. There's you change you know you 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 go down the road, but you change over from the euro to the British pound. But kind of geographically in Northern Ireland, I found it interesting just driving through how some towns have just Union Jack everywhere. Couldn't be more clearly stated that this is maybe like a loyalist town. Is there any kind of uh, guys division within Northern Ireland geographically of like where you'll typically find Catholics, typically find Protestants or loyalists or nationalists, like, or is it kind of like you said, I mean, you touched on it neighbor to neighbor, town to town is, it was very complicated and interwoven, but in today's day and age, is there more, I guess, division? Oh, it's definitely the division is still there. And anyone who grew up here almost has a sixth sense of which territory they're in at any given point in time. And, that can vary from you can move from one street or a couple of blocks from one tribe's area into another. Now, those also tend to be generally in in working class, more impoverished neighborhoods where you see the kind of tribal emblems because, you know, frankly, affluent people who own their own home don't actually hang flags from it very often in this country. It's it really is. You can't understate the issue of flags and emblems in this country. It's now what they're reduced to fighting over because everyone assumes that it's some assault on their culture if their flag is not being sort of flown or, or, or treated with the respect that they believe it, it's due. So it's there's literally nothing we won't fight over in this country. And the, the hanging of flags and the, the painting of curbstones on the sidewalk to, to reflect this kind of tribal territory, it's it's very low rent. It's very kind of low intensity warfare but that's really what it is it's literally all that's left to fight over really and last one on this i i understand that security measures are probably going to be different for this this open than any of the other opens in the past is there any worry with the, this being one of the biggest sporting events probably that northern ireland has ever held that this is going to be i guess an opportunity for somebody that wanted to cause trouble to you know really have that voice amplified on this international stage is there anything that you kind of feel like worried about in that regard coming into this week I don't feel particularly worried about it, but it's it's really quite noticeable in the run-up to this Open that the most powerful lobby, or the loudest lobby, appears to be the kind of tourist industry apparatchiks who are determined to tell everyone that there's nothing wrong here, that somehow the success of the Open depends upon pretending that Northern Ireland is something other than what it is. And it's not a becalmed little place. It's a bitterly divided place that has the potential for violence. Again, we even saw it in various kind of minor social unrest 
threats last week over the, a bizarre issue like people lighting bonfires. It, there is a simmering tension in this country. So when people stand up and tell you that there's absolutely no danger or threat that it could somehow be affected by it, it's nonsense. It's complete bullshit. But it's unlikely. But again, there are people in this country who see a major platform, a global platform that's getting a lot of attention. And it wouldn't take even an act of violence to get attention, just merely the threat of violence, you know, calling in bomb threats or trying to somehow disrupt the logistics. That's always an issue in in this country. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I don't anticipate there's any actual threat to life and limb that's likely this week, but there's always a chance that somebody will disrupt it just for the PR value. Well, let's hope that is definitely not the case. So uh, transitioning here to this, the actual championship here, but almost uh, still, I guess, before we do, what is golf like in Northern Ireland? For somebody that's never been there, never played there, is how does it differ from Ireland or the other British Isles? Or tell us, kind of take us there to what the golf scene is like in Northern Ireland. It's really indistinguishable as an experience from playing golf in either the Republic of Ireland or, or Scotland or England. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the two highest ranked golf courses that Ireland, the island of Ireland has are both actually in Northern Ireland with Royal County Down and Royal Port Rush, which, you know, Port Rush has always been in, in the top 20 uh, in the world lists for, for many, many years at this point. And it's the same experience you'll find anywhere else you know they are quite in their own way stuffy private clubs but there is always guest access where visitors can come on certain days and play and are, are perfectly welcome so it's not really an experience that you would find greatly different from what any listener is accustomed to in playing golf in the British Isles anywhere else. I'll tell you if if you if anybody is traveling to Port Rush and gets the opportunity to play with a member, it is well worth it. I had I was invited by a member to play, and uh, I was insistent on paying the guest fee. I told him like, "Thank you so much, but please like don't please let me pay." Just used to like what U.S. guest fees are, whatever one hundred fifty two hundred dollars is what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's like. Shh. I mean, sure. If you want, go like go ahead. If you'd like to go, I think they'll let you pay in the clubhouse. And I went in there; it was twenty pounds. The guest fee was twenty pounds, <laughs> which I absolutely could not believe. But well, the vis- the visitor fee is certainly not twenty pounds. So you should alert your listeners to that. Fact. Yeah, I could. <laughs> now I'm going to get fifty emails asking me to set some, set them up with the member that, it, that was so gracious to invite me out. But. Uh, so take me to the town of Port Rush. I mean, when I was there, it, it didn't scream like, hey, this is a major hub for a major championship. What is is the infrastructure of the town going to be able to handle this kind of you know onslaught that's going to get this week? What preparations have been made coming into this week? And, and take us there. You sound like a man who's never been to the horrors of Carnoustie or Turnberry. Well, <laughs> uh, m- most of these open championships are held in little seaside towns where the literally the best thing in it is the road out. And Port Rush is certainly comparable to St. Andrews, I believe, in terms of its size. Um, but, you know, St. Andrews and Berkdale are really the only two open venues where you can say there is a, a town there, there, there's some manner of infrastructure. And Port Rush, I think, is on a par with those. It's, it's really no more difficult to get to uh, than, than almost any other open championship venue. They all tend to be in these kind of little slightly faded seaside towns that had their glory days back before people actually flew somewhere for vacation. And it has that same vibe that is really indistinguishable uh, at any other open in that respect. Is there going to be, uh, how is Harbour Bar going to even be able to handle what's what's coming to them this coming week? Well, our mutual friend, Mr. Shackelford, walked by it last night and he uh, 
say there were about 100 people gathered outside of it. Uh, so it's there could be, if there is going to be trouble, it may be because people can't actually get into the harbour <laughs> bar more so than anything to do with politics. I can't. I can't picture that. That bar can only hold about fifty people. It seems to be, uh, anyways. And it's uh, so. The reason I asked that question about the infrastructure, though, is I feel from what I've gathered, almost maybe two hundred thousand tickets have been sold, which is like the first time mm-hmm. it's ever sold out. How in the hell? Like, first of all, where are all these people coming from? I imagine it is the just the entire you know con- continent or the entire island is just going to be heading north to Port Rush. Where is everybody going to stay? How is this all going to work? Well, a lot of it is certainly the open traffic is a lot of it is sort of day visitors who are, are driving in, which has really always been the case. It's And you don't tend to get a lot of hotels around these uh, open venues that last very long in terms of rooms. Anyway, it's great for Airbnb. It's been wonderful for open championship accommodations. But I think it's a lot of people driving in the same way when the Irish Open was held here in 2012. It was a sellout. It was deemed by the European Tour to be a major success and a lot of people will credit the open coming to Port Rush to GMAC and to Rory and Darren Clark as having won major championships all in that little window in the in the early part of this decade and forced the, the conversation in that direction. But I think the more decisive thing was the Irish Open being held at Port Rush in two thousand twelve because it was a huge success and it was a corporate success and it sold out with massive informed, civilized, well behaved crowds. And I think that's what proved to the RNA that this could actually happen here, a tournament of scale. Was that, uh, when that tournament happened, I remember that happening in 2012, and the extreme crowds that were there, did people at that time know that it was somewhat of an audition for potentially uh, hosting the Open Championship? I think so, because the conversation had really started to kick off uh, probably a year before that. GMAC won at Pebble Beach in 2010. It was a year after that. Rory won at Congressional at the US Open and then a month after Rory wins, Darren Clark wins the Open Championship at Royal St. George's. So in a 13-month period, you had three major championships being won from guys who come from an area that has a population of one and a half million. And that suddenly, along with the general kind of smug provincialism that defines the Irish tourism industry, anyway, that became a selling point is, you know, we are this kind of little golf kingdom that doesn't get recognized, which has a certain degree of truth behind it. And that's really when the conversation turned to the open, because it was never actually in dispute that there are venues here good enough to host the championship. I don't see it ever going to Royal County Down because, frankly, there are too many blind shots on that golf course. It's just a little bit too quirky for an open championship. But Port Rush, I mean, Port Rush had the senior open five years in a row. In, during an eight-year stretch in which uh, it was played in Northern Ireland in the in the mid '90s, so it's it certainly is of a caliber that can host the Open Championship. So once you take aside the issue of whether or not there is the public support for it, whether or not there is a PR support for it, and whether or not it's got a good enough venue, well, then all that leaves you is the kind of the politics and security issue, which seems to one hopes have been put to bed at this stage. Yeah, what kind of from an infrastructure standpoint is it complicated for the RNA to move across a sea? I mean, how, how does that work? From uh, you know, because this hasn't happened since 1951, is that something that is had to go into consideration? And how is all that going to be handled? Are you familiar? I don't think it was part of the consideration, but it certainly became part of the consideration after the the Brexit vote. And Martin Slumbers, the chief executive of the RNA, was quoted earlier this year saying that 
there was a certain amount of frustration that they were hosting the Open here, given the kind of debate and logistical issues that Brexit might bring up. This is when they thought they may actually be out of Europe before the Open Championship actually took place. Now it's, you know, it's kind of rolling delays, which has kept them in the European Union for now, Britain. And even, I mean, Rory noticed that at the time, GMAC noticed that at the time. I think there's definitely an idea that Brexit might affect whether or not they actually come back here regardless of how successful it is, because it will become a somewhat more complicated process, no matter how the Brexit issue works itself out. But I don't believe it was a consideration at the time, because ultimately they're still shipping their infrastructure to some tiny little seaside town, no matter what uh, option they go with. With all the hoopla around this event and all the attention that if, and the, the media attention that Rory and GMAC are going to be dealing with this week, is there any way that they're going to be able to handle all this and compete? I mean, is this comparable to really any other ath- any other golfer returning somewhere or a championship going somewhere that we've seen in the last, say, 10, 20 years? Well, as we can see in this game that, you know, home games tend not to work out for guys very well. I mean, look, a couple of years ago, Tommy Fleetwood was under a lot of scrutiny at, at Birkdale, and this is is much greater than that. And, of course, it didn't affect Patrick Reed at Augusta uh, playing a home game for him. But I think, I would honestly think Rory's under more scrutiny here this week than he gets any year he goes to Augusta National now, trying to complete the career Grand Slam, uh, which is why whenever my editors at Golf Week asked me to pick a favourite and a long shot for this week, I picked Rory, who, in effect, really is the favourite. I picked Rory as my long shot because I think the distractions and the intensity of the scrutiny is such that I don't think it's going to be that easy for Rory to disconnect from that and actually focus on what's going on between the ropes. And I, I think that's a very difficult thing to do for him, particularly this week. For me, it, you said you mentioned Rory kind of as being somewhat of the favorite. I kind of I get what you're going for there with calling him the long shot and all he's got to deal with. But in my book, is there anybody? We shouldn't be looking past Kepka for anybody to be considered the favorite. Do you agree with that? You certainly can't look past a guy like like Brooks on a course like this just as much as you can't look past a Tiger or a DJ, everyone cites Brooks having the advantage of Ricky Elliott on the bag. Ricky grew up in Port Rush, and Ricky has shot 65 on this golf course himself. He's a very competitive player. But, you know, that evens out as well, because Ricky Elliott hadn't hit any of the shots. (laughs) And Harry Diamond uh, has played this golf course every bit as well in competitive pressure as Ricky Elliott has, but he hadn't hit the shots for Rory either. So the, the value of the kind of what the backroom experience is, I think might be more overstated this week than than we're accustomed to with particular focus on the caddies for Rory and Brooks. But I, I would expect it's certainly not going to hurt either player in terms of the, the knowledge. I mean, there have been changes to the course over the years, but it's Brooks Kepka is not going to face the same scrutiny from the, the world at large as Rory McIlroy is this week. Norris Tiger, it's simply Rory's kind of in a bubble on his own this week, and it's going to be tough to break out of it. Yeah, he gets Rory gets a look this week at what Tiger pretty much goes through every week of his life, which will be interesting to see. And Kepko will probably be take it as a slight that he's not getting as much attention as Rory's getting this week. <laughs> but we haven't talked much about the golf course. I was I was curious if you kind of what your knowledge of what the changes uh, they've made to the golf course is over the last several years to get ready for this uh, championship, and if you could speak on that. Sure. Well, they actually used to always have a rap on Portrush that it was 17 great holes and the 18th, which was actually overstating it because it was 16 great holes and <laughs> 17 and 18 were were pretty dull. And part of what actually 
got the Open Championship here was consigning the 17th and 18th hole to become this, the Spectator Village with merchandising and food, uh, which left them having to find two other holes somewhere on the golf course. So they up in the northeast corner of the property, uh, they found just on the on land that had not been used before for golf and then partially on land that used to be part of the valley course here. They've carved out two new holes, a par five and a par four, at seven and eight, um, which by by all accounts look look pretty beautiful, pretty challenging. And I think that gives a, a pretty stout test for these guys because a lot of links courses don't start or end on good golf holes because uh, typically that they were built in a, an era where they put the clubhouse on the flattest piece of land. So one in 18 just took you away from it and took you back to it. That, and, you know, it's a, a game over here of match play. So the, all the best holes tended to be kind of out there where the match was actually won and lost, not on, on the first or 18th. And the first support rush is actually a pretty uh, tense hole for a lot of these guys because there is out of bounds in play. But taking in seven and eight and finishing on what was the old 16th hole with the famous par three calamity now coming in as the 16th which used to be the 13th it's a very it's a very good strong championship test of golf that can hold its own with any other course on the open road and is better than a number of them yeah that's what i actually uh i think it was in the summer of 2017 is when they put the two new holes in what uh what do you what can you tell us about the new seventh and eighth holes there's a par five the seventh 590 yards i think it can stretch back to and then the eighth which comes back and now links you to uh to the ninth hole which was previously the seventh hole uh have you seen those holes and, and what do you think of them i haven't been out on the golf course yet i just arrived here today i've seen a lot of flyover videos over the last couple of years of it i've talked to a few guys like ricky elliott and harry who've been out there checking it and the, the the seventh hole is 592 and it's kind of played from an elevated uh, tee to an elevated green and that part at least is in keeping with what you see a lot here at port rush because we're all accustomed to seeing links courses where you get the run up shot a lot where guys can actually get on the green from the rough because they can land the ball short and just let it ride the contours up onto the green. You're not going to see that as much at Port Rush because there are so many elevated greens out here where that traditional run-up shot, particularly coming out of the rough, is just not really a great option. And the seventh hole is in keeping with that because the green is a little bit elevated as well. And the the greens, I've heard a couple of people say that the two new greens seem a little bit busier. Than, than the other greens on the course, which is, I guess, kind of what you'd expect when they're, you know, 100 plus years younger than uh, what was there before on the rest of the golf course. But I, I definitely have not heard anyone say that the holes themselves are out of character with what is here or somehow diminish the test that's on offer. If anything, there seems to be a consensus that they strengthen the test. Oh, without a doubt. And I think that, like you said, eliminating those last two holes and just kind of squeezing in two great holes into a stretch that was already very memorable. And now, like that, that finish of the, you know, 16 now being 18, dogleg right, great par four to finish on. And then the 17th hole is, I feel like, maybe been a bit overlooked to this point. And that if you get the right wind conditions, I think it's going to be about 360 yards in the last maybe 80 yards of it, maybe even more than that, are all straight downhill. Are, do you think you're going to see guys give that give that hole kind of a go? It's going to be kind of a risk-reward drivable par four? I think they will, because it's actually playing right around 400 
yard. So if you can drive it to that three three ten point, you could try to ride it down there onto the green. And the flip side is, if you play conservatively just to the top of the hill, it's still a pretty tricky downhill pitch shot into a. A, a narrow green that has pot bunkers to the left and pot bunkers to the right. But it, it's it's a, an interesting challenge and a nice decision to have to make on a Sunday afternoon. It's when you think there's a chance of it too, but the failure to get that too could leave you walking away with a, a five or a six. And, you know, that's a pretty nice hole that viewers are going to be able to see here come the weekend. And 16 is has always been one of the, one of the most daunting holes out here and it's playing i believe around the 235 yard mark this week which you get that into the wind and you're going to have a challenge what is the viewing experience going to be like for fans there i've only been to a couple opens and it's been quite challenging to say the least just in the the, the way the landscape works that in these golf courses obviously that were built hundreds and year, hundreds of years ago we're not built with amphitheaters in mind and viewing spaces in mind for a lot of a lot of people but as, with as many tickets as they've sold how has the RNA kind of prepared for that? And what do you expect uh, viewers to walk away feeling after this week? Well, I think that's why they capped the number of ticket sales, because this is the first open where you can't actually just walk up to the gate on the day and buy a ticket. That's always been one of the, the charms of the open, in my mind. And it gets you, um, I actually feel, a much more savvy golf audience who show up because it's not just simply the trophy hunters looking for limited tickets but i believe they're at forty thousand a day for the tournament days here and there it's tough to feed guys around in between these dunes because there's, there's always the risk of somebody breaking a leg get trying to get up and down these dune slopes to the side of the holes but they've been pretty astute in where they have put uh, grandstands and how they have angled them to try to give the the most looks at the, in the most different directions as possible. Uh, but it's, it's always going to be a bit of a challenge to get people around a links course, but that's always kind of been also, I suppose, part of the charm of the Open. But it's not going to be like Chambers Bay back in the day where at one point they played a par five where there was just simply no spectators on it because they are, the USGA couldn't funnel them in and funnel them out. I don't think it's going to get that bad here. What, uh, correct me, help me out with this one. If I remember right, the uh, viewing spot that I had picked out as the best one being behind what is now going to be the 17th green. And on the other side of that is a par three. Is that the 10th hole? Am I remembering that right? Uh, the, your memory of it's probably better than mine. Okay. I'm not quite sure of the global layout of it. I don't have my GPS. <laughs> but there's there's two greens that basically back up to each other. And I, I always thought that that would be a great grandstand spot if you could get up in the top row of one of those bleachers and watch both of those greens. But And there's also actually, it was quite interesting today, even in the practice rounds, the the main road that runs right past the 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 golf course past the first hole there's plenty of people standing out there just standing up on the little foot high wall along the curb just watching looking in so they don't even actually need a ticket to get the the best advantage out here but there's a, I think it's tougher once you get out on those holes that are out towards the the cliff tops particularly out to, on five which is maybe the best hole on the golf course I think it's it's very hard to get grandstands and spectators back into these little crevices on a links course where we're going to see most of the drama which is probably just reinforces the idea that golf is much better watched than on tv than in person <laughs> you're telling me you're telling me but again i know we're, I know we're spending a lot of time on this infrastructure thing but i think it's important to the conversation in that you know we always we this this podcast is mostly just half-baked ideas on where tournaments should go and shouldn't go but I was astonished to hear, too, how much money was spent by the RNA, not only like widening roads and increasing kind of the train schedule and structure there, but 
also the paths that players got to take. They had to make man-made tunnels between some of the holes out there for players to walk. Basically, it's going to get used one week a year, not even every year. And the amount of time and money that went into kind of structuring that just kind of blew me away. All the, all the considerations that had to be made so many years in advance for how the players are going to be able to move between the crowds and whatnot. Sure. And I mean, we have to remember that there was a reason why Turnberry wasn't on the open road after 15 years is because the road to get to the golf course was deemed to be too inhospitable for the amount of traffic that was involved. And there were similar issues with Carnoustie in terms of the infrastructure in the town and the absence of a hotel. And that spent 24 years off the road before coming back in 1999. And I think there's actually an assumption here that this is a more than one and done deal, that this amount of infrastructure is not being put in and invested in just simply to come here once and leave. Of course, that was all pre-Brexit. So, And the tender political situation that exists over here, you can never actually guarantee that it's coming back. But I think there's a very strong assumption, certainly among those at the golf club and within the golf circles in Ireland, that the Open will be back again. So it is a long-term investment. There seems to be, and then watching some of the Scottish Open uh, this weekend and, and looking at the forecast for this coming week, a disturbingly low amount of wind. Is it safe to say the scores are going to be pretty low and these guys are going to take this place apart? Well, if, if there is no wind, then I would say yes, because I've yet to see the Lynx course that isn't kind of taken right. apart by these guys when there is no wind and rain. I mean, I've been in Ireland now for about 12 days and it has rained once. And I'm, I lived here long enough to know that doesn't really hold up very long so i'm i'm expecting that the wind and rain might kind of show its face by tournament days or by next weekend and really that's what i want i know all these people like to argue for their chamber of commerce days where it's beautiful sunshine and everyone's happy and making birdies that's not what i want i want it raining in these guys pockets i want the (laughs) the wind blowing them sideways because i've always argued that the open championship is a test of attitude as much as aptitude and attitude gets tested in conditions like that it's why tom watson won five of these things and why bubba watson goes home on friday night at every open it really is about the attitude and if we don't get the weather i don't think it ever really turns into a great test what uh, what kind of player is this golf course going to suit? I know you talked some about the elevated green sites and it not necessarily being a golf course that you need to play in front of a, a lot of greens, but is it wide? Are the fairways wide? What kind of fescue and kind of punishment can guys expect for wayward tee shots this week? I definitely think this is a, a, a golf course where the the more accurate hitters are at a, at a little bit of an advantage. Certainly long and accurate is an advantage everywhere. But a great driver of the golf ball here has an advantage because simply because it's harder to play it from the rough, you can't really run the ball up onto these greens. The premium becomes on being in the position in the fairway to be able to fly uh, your approach shot onto the green from, from the right side since you've got to carry it all the way there on so many holes. So you would actually argue a setup for a guy like Rory McIlroy, who's not necessarily the straightest in the world, but he can. Rory doesn't need to hit a driver to to you know, put it out there long and straight on, on this golf course. But the guys who are a little more wayward, you know, a, a Phil Mickelson, I would be kind of shocked if Phil would be in contention here on, on Sunday. I just don't think it has the wiggle room necessary for a lot of guys who tend to be a little more wayward off the tee. 
You touched on Tiger a bit earlier. Uh, you, know, you, you mentioned that you can't count him out, which I think is a, is a, a fair statement. But you know, kind of hearing his comments after Pebble and the struggles he had with the temperature and how that affected his back, do you think that will have any factor uh, coming into this coming week and that he's kind of struggled with colder temperatures, uh, kind of getting his body fully activated? I think it's always going to be an issue for him going forward. I mean, that could be an issue for any of these guys who've had some manner of, of back issues in the past. But I think it's... Uh, I actually believe that Tiger, and to an extent, Phil will continue to challenge in this event for another decade because this is really the kind of golf where Guile and Savvy can actually compete against kids who just want to bludgeon the ball as far as they can. So as long as Tiger can get some modicum of physical comfort, I think he has every other tool necessary to be right there on Sunday afternoon, even if his experience of this golf course is so much less than most any other major venue that he's actually played in recent years. What, uh, in your mind, what deems this week a, a successful week? I think if it's, uh, obviously the main answer to that question is that there is no kind of quasi-political unrest or, or violence that actually mars it, which I think is what a lot of people assume that it's still some kind of risk of which is, I believe, fairly minimal. I think it's the same value of success as as every other major championship we see. Uh, we just want the venue to stand up t- to these guys to present a test. And you kind of want a, wor- a winner that's worthy of the venue. And, you know, there's plenty of people would argue that Max Faulkner was that not that winner the last time we were here in 1951. But, you know, he beat everyone else who showed up. So let's just hope we get a great tournament with a a winner that's actually worthy of champion golfer of the year. How many tee times at Port Stewart do you have this week? Zero. I have actually played nine holes this trip that I was bullied into with my nephew. And otherwise I've been on the range four times. So make of that what you will, Chris. What do you do? All right. I I stand on the range and I softly weep to myself. (laughs) So if, if, unfortunately the great links courses over here tend not to, do driving ranges or, or practice grounds as they call them. So I think my clubs are in the bag until I get back to the East Coast. What uh, What are your top recommendations for golf in Northern Ireland? I mean, everybody knows about uh, Royal County Down and, and Port Rush, but uh, what are some of the uh, the next level of golf courses that you would recommend to people that are potentially having a trip up there? Certainly Ardglass is one that's worth looking at, uh, which is just a little bit north of Royal County Down. And it used to be a real shooting gallery of a golf course because about four or five holes intersected. So you would literally swing and duck because there was an incoming shot from someone else. But that changed about 15 years ago with some beautiful new holes that they built. And if you can overlook the fact that they gave Rich Beam an honorary membership there, it is worth going to. Uh, Castle Rock, which is not far from here, is pretty well regarded. Nick Faldo built an interesting course called Loch Earn, which is about an hour south of Port Rush. Um, but ultimately, no one crosses an ocean to play golf inland in Ireland. So you tend to look to the very northern coast of, of Donegal up at Ballyliffin, where the Irish Open was played last year, and then head out to where, where you guys were recently, places like Carn, which just feels like the end of the earth, and it's just spectacular woolly golf. All right, well, Mr. Lynch, thank you so much for uh, all the insights, man. This was uh, a, a good learning experience for me. I think it will be for the listeners as well, and give uh, gives people a lot of things to watch for this week. I'm gonna I'm gonna pin you down and make you make one pick though before the uh, before the week. Who's gonna win? Eddie Pepperell. Oh, nice. It's a guy who's got a, a 
good links course record. He's actually been a runner-up in the, the Irish Open a couple of times. He played well at Le Hinch a couple of weeks ago. It, I think this is the week where Eddie gets attention for something other than dancing along the third rail of Twitter. I think this is this could be his week. All right, we're going to make you play our game, too. Every Before every major, we, we have to pick somebody that, that won't win. And it's the uh, DJ Pie uh, shame of shame. Well, we'll call it the DJ Pie shame because the first time we did it, he picked Patrick Reed at the Masters. So who's not going to win this week? Have, it has to be like a really a top player. Do we still consider Phil a top player? Uh, yes, but that's an easy... Uh, that's an easy one for you. Okay, I think DJ is not going okay. to win. That's a that's a safe that that fits the uh, fits the realm of the of the game pretty well. So, uh, <laughs> but thank you for taking the time. Enjoy the week at Port Rush, and uh, I hope everything goes great. And we, I can't wait to watch this golf course. I think we we talked a lot about the nuts and bolts of it, but the beauty of it is uh, been a bit even maybe understated to this point, and that a lot of the Lynx golf courses that the Open Championship goes to do not look as pretty as Royal Port Rush is going to look on TV. I would imagine. That's for sure. This it really is just a spectacular golf course. And if we are able to get to the point where we leave aside all of the other nonsense that seems to have dominated the, the narrative to this point and just let the golf course stand on its own, then I think we're in for a pretty awesome week. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, enjoy the week. We'll have you back uh, sometime soon, hopefully. Thanks, Chris. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!